Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. If I've not met you, my name is Fritz, and I'm along with Murray, one of the pastors here. Would love to uh, meet you at some point, if uh, I have not. Um, if you have a Bible, you can be turning to Romans chapter 1 this morning, verse 18. I had a cat introduction. I'm not using it. Um, but I told Murray, actually, in the shower, about four illustrations came to me, and uh, because of my mind, I have to, like, go, you can't, you don't have to use it. You don't have to, just because it came to you, you don't have to use it. But um, I did rearrange one, thankfully, and took another one and put it at the beginning. Um, but I, I like what that prayer said, that um, leaping over walls of shame, I think, is how he prayed it. Uh, that comes from a psalm where David talks about God giving, asking God for strength to leap over a wall. And we will never leap if we don't understand what Christ has done for us. The wall that he leapt over for us. And that involves a subject that many don't prefer to talk to, the wrath of God, or talk about. Um, I have a a truck that has Sirius radio, and if you know anything about satellite radio, um, I love it. You don't have any commercials. It's perfect for me. But I've noticed that sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes when I turn it on and I go to my presets, as soon as I push the 80 station, it is at the very beginning of an 80 song that I like. And I'm like, that's odd. How did, I mean, maybe it's just chance, so to speak. And I'll push the 90 station, and the person, the little DJ will be talking and coming to the end, and it'll start a song that I like. I'm like, is this the wrong right now? Or is all of Sirius Radio absolutely programmed to my preferences? I don't know. You can Google it later. But some of our preferences when it comes to the subject that Paul writes about this morning, some of us prefer that we talk about wrath nonstop. And that's all we talk about. Some would prefer that we never talk about it. We don't have the stomach for it. Today we're going to look at the subject of the wrath of God. What I am framing as, and I wish I could have redone the outline, as Paul says later, the kindness and the severity of God. And what I want to be very clear about this morning is that if you remember what Paul is doing here, and I'd encourage you if you were not here last week, and every week you're not here, to listen to the previous sermon on the podcast because it really, what we're looking at today is set up by last week. Last week, Paul said that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Because in it, something is revealed for us. And it is the righteousness of God. Which leads to today's sermon, that we are not righteous. And actually the next few weeks we're going to see Paul sort of lay this out like a lawyer. He's going to show that, that the world apart from God is not righteous. And the church apart from God is not righteous. 
But Paul is saying to us that through Jesus, you and I can actually be in right relationship with God and His law. But today we're going to look at how apart from Jesus, we are not in right relationship with God or His law. It's what, again, some people have called the bad news or the sad news or the hard news. But I want us to remember, this is all framed from chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, which is the theme of Romans, that a righteousness has been revealed for salvation. So let me read our text this morning. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Thus ends the reading of God's Word. Let me pray. God, thank You that You are God and You have given us revelation through Your Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray today that Your Spirit would indeed be with us as we wade through a difficult text, Lord, 
but a text that is set within a greater context of your eagerness to seek sinners. We pray that you might be glorified, that we might be strengthened by grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So my wife and I this week went to see a musical. Our daughter and new son-in-law gifted us um, tickets to see Wicked. If anybody's ever seen it, it's a story of, of the Wicked Witch of the West. It ties in with the story of the Wizard of Oz. It's a fascinating story. It's a fascinating musical. All sorts of layers that you have to work through and wade through. But there's this opening scene where the, the queen that's sort of in charge, Glinda, I always say it wrong, Galinda, sorry if you've seen it, and she's pronouncing that the wicked witch of the West is finally dead. And everyone's rejoicing, rejoicing, wickedness is finally gone. And someone asked the question, and I totally missed this the first time we saw it, they asked the question, are people born wicked or is it thrust upon them? It's a great question. And, and to paraphrase her answer, she says, you know what? It's complicated. Let's go back to her story in the beginnings of her story. Well, the Bible will actually get to part of that answer in a few chapters. But part of the answer to the question of wickedness and this is going to surprise us, is because God actually gives us over to it as a result of rejecting Him. What we will see today is that if we reject God and we run to idolatry, God will give us over to that which will lead to all forms of unrighteousness. And yet... Here's the good news, because I want you to understand what Paul is doing in this text. He is not trashing the world. He is not throwing stones at the world. He's not even, in a sense, judging the world. He is explaining something. Why it is that we need the righteousness of God. In fact, the church he is writing to were former Gentiles who were probably caught up in all sorts of idolatry and unrighteousness. And I think he's saying to them, hey, such as you were, as some of you were. In fact, as we said before, as Murray said a couple weeks ago to me, what Paul is really doing with Romans 1 is he's setting up religious people and moralistic people and Romans 2. So just keep that in mind. This is not a, we're going to just trash the world in this sermon, sermon. But we are not also going to ignore what the Bible calls the severity of God. That you are left with something if you reject God and you reject His kindness. You are only left with His severity. His wrath. Some of you might want to change the channel right now according to your preferences. I would encourage you to stay with us this morning. First point is this, the wrath of God. 
couple introductory thoughts very briefly. The wrath of God, before we define it and describe it from this text, it is first of all something that everyone believes in whether they admit it or not. We all believe in wrath. If you see a video of someone being beaten mercilessly to death, something in you should absolutely respond to that. If you have been the victim of child abuse or sexual abuse, something in you should absolutely respond and be revulsed against that. If you hear of tyranny and wars and, and, and tyrants, absolutely, we believe in wrath. I'm rereading a book called Just Mercy that talks about things that went on in the 70s and the 80s and, and my own state that I grew up in. That I'm just like, how, how did I not know about that? Why did no one say anything about this? That inside of us, that desire is tied to wrath and judgment or you don't need all of that you could have been like me the other day at the red light and we got the green light and the guy in front of me was on his phone and I gave him the love tap on the horn like beep beep oh he took off and he got to the blinking yellow light and guess what he did again got back on his phone there were no cars coming behind him and I don't give him the love tap beep that time it's the it's the wrath honk so we all believe in judgment and wrath and all those things but it's also because we have such poor human examples we have the outrage version hit that horn I could just kill him right it's a little excessive for someone just being on their phone in the light wouldn't you say Raging fury, flying off the handle. Maybe the way your dad or mom responded to your sin. But then there's the other side of just permissiveness and avoiding evil, ignoring it and being apathetic to it. Or, or I, you know, I'm just, I'm just going to turn the other way. We all believe in some form of wrath. But what exactly is it? I'm going to try to define it. In a word, it is anger. It is anger. That's the word for it in Greek. It simply means indignation. A violent emotion that arouses against evil. Here are two quotes I came up with in commentators that I read this week. God's righteous anger because of our sinful, rebellious condition. That God would not be loving without having that sense about Him. God's holy revulsion against that which is the contradiction of all that is holy. Pick anything good, beautiful, loving, and take the opposite of it. It's God's holy revulsion against that. Again, it's what Paul calls the severity of God. Now, let's jump into our text. And let's let Paul explain it and more or less describe it from Romans chapter 1. Look at verse 18. Paul writes this. Yes, in verse 17 he said God's righteousness is revealed. And in contrast to that, the need of it is, is verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed 
from heaven. And this is good news. I want you to see the good news in this. It's revealed from heaven, from God. Again, we don't deal good with anger or righteous anger even. This is different from ours. This is revealed from God. It's good news that God handles wrath. Verse 18 again, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against two broad categories here. I want you to see how Paul does this because he's going to break the the rest of the chapter up into these broad categories. Ungodliness, this has to do with worship. This has to do with idolatry. In other words, there is a God, I'm going to refuse to worship Him. This deals in, in Old Testament terms with the first four commandments. And unrighteousness. This is more the area of morality and behavior. This deals with the last six commandments. So Paul is saying the wrath of God is revealed from heaven because of this order. We start with rejecting God and it leads to all sorts of crazy behaviors. Paul goes on to say that we actually, by those behaviors and by that unrighteousness, suppress the truth. Now the word suppress, I thought meant what you would think it would mean, like like a cough suppressant. But actually, I think a better interpretation, and that, that can still work, it's still the same idea, but it's more the idea of holding something back. Something that is there and you say, I know that's true, but I'm going to keep it at a distance. Right? It's like someone who is married and they know their vows and they decide to take off their wedding ring and put it away. So they they keep it at a distance and they don't have to think about their vows or their spouse. Well, what are we keeping at a distance? Paul writes, verse 19, the knowledge of God. What can be known about God is, what does he say? Plain to them. It's clear and obvious. It's spelled out. We all know that friend that they just don't get it the first time you say it or the second or the third time you have something like, let me spell it out for you. And they're like, oh, okay, I get it. Paul is saying it's spelled out for us. The knowledge of God is spelled out. It's manifested is the other word he used. It's brought to light. And how does God do that? Through creation. Look at what he says. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has manifested or shown it to them or brought it to light. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power, His divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Do you see what he's saying here? This is sort of Christianity, what we call in theological terms, general revelation 101. And we get that phrase from Psalm 19 that that sort of puts together general revelation and specific revelation, special revelation from God. And what he's saying here is that you should be able to look at all that God created, and as C.S. Lewis said, you start from the sunbeam of His creation, you should be able to recognize that there is a sun, there is a source that that all comes from. In fact, Psalm 19 uses... That same image, he says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies 
proclaim his name. Day after day, they pour forth speech. There is nowhere you can go, no language in the earth where you don't know that there is a God. That's a fact. And then he says this, it's so clear, it's so obvious, it's like a sun, that he talks about the sun and God's creation, that the sun is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion. Grooms, let me give you a pat on the back here for just a second, because we know who gets all the attention in a wedding, right? The bride. And they should, because they're much more beautiful. But he's saying there's somebody else in a wedding, and it's a groom, and he's excited. He doesn't want to be in that little vestibule hanging out. He can't wait for the minister to say, oh, they're playing that song. And what does he do? He come. Now, he might have to pace out slow because the wedding director is going to tell him to. You can see the joy on his face. He says the sun is like that. It's like a champion, a strong runner running his course with joy, not as our son used to run cross-country begrudgingly and blah, but with joy. I read an article the other day that talked about a book called Awe, A-W-E, The New Science of Everyday Wonder and How It Can Transform Your Life. It goes on to explain that there's this science being created that, that is sort of like they would tell you to go meditate for 10 minutes a day. They would say, go look at a sunrise for 10 minutes a day. That it actually has physical healing, medicinal power, so to speak. It can help deal with trauma, depression, anxiety, addictions. It will actually produce humility. You understand that, right? When you see a, a beautiful sunset or the Grand Canyon, it can make you feel so small and you think less of yourself and you even find yourself sort of generous and altruistic, even the most hardened, you know, non-Christian in the world. And then they said this, it might be the defining feature of our species. You think? The Bible's been telling us this forever. And that awe, that wonder, should take us back to our Creator. And instead, verse 21 said, we looked at God and said, no thank you. We refuse to honor and give thanks to Him. It's sort of the idea again of worship and, and what you would normally simply easily recognize as a form of honor. For example, if, if this were a room full of military people and we're all privates in the military and a five-star general walked in that room and we just said, I'm just going to get on my phone and ignore him or her. Paul's saying, you didn't honor him. Or give him gratitude. And then it leads verses 22 and 23 to this worship exchange. Right? It's sort of like when you exchange an item at the store for something else. Paul's using that image to say, we took the glory of God and instead worshiped things that maybe imaged him a little bit. We worship images. Instead of worshiping he who is incorruptible, we worship that which is corruptible. We, we, instead of worshiping the Creator, exchange that for the creation. And he says it like this. 
Look how he says it in verse 22. Things that resembled mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And commentators talk about how this was an ancient way of classifying sort of all things. Here's my, here's my translation. We worship anything we literally can get our hands on. Anybody feel that? Anything in creation. You might say yesterday that cardinals were worshipped. Thousands of fans getting together in a stadium to worship a cardinal. You think I'm crazy. I'm not. I am crazy, but that's not crazy. Wildcats, buckeyes. Children. I worship my son playing peewee football. And I knew it at the time. And I didn't know how to admit it. I didn't hear other dads confessing it. I didn't hear other dads that were Christians confessing it. We will make anything into a God. And I want you to see that the order here is worship first, then behavior. If you're trying to fix behaviors in your life and that's all you're dealing with, nothing's going to be fixed if you're not going back to worship. That's a whole other sermon. Books we can give you about that. We can talk about those kind of things. Okay, but I want you to see that the primary issue is worship, the first four commandments. God has made himself, to sum this first little section up, God has made himself clear to us, and we have said, no thank you. Keep your distance. And what's the result? Wrath. And I want you to see here that wrath is not arbitrary. It is just, it is fair, Look at the words he uses, verse 24. Therefore, verse 26, for this reason, verse 28, since, chapter 2, verse 2, it rightly falls. God is not unfair, unjust here. And notice also that it's not so much as by God intervening. You know, we think wrath, we think Zeus and thunderbolts. That's not what's happening here. God is actually saying, I'm going to go hands off in a sense. I'm going to give you what you want. I'm going to act like I'm not here. In fact, he gives us over to these things. Three times he says it. See, maybe we can stomach that God judges and punishes. Some of us can... We get that. We stomach that. Okay, that's in the Bible. I believe it. We, we go to the cross and we get that, right? And we're going to get there in a few weeks. But, but how he punishes us may surprise us. In a word, disintegration. Disintegration. By giving us over to that which destroy us and others. As Paul will later say in Romans 11, by consigning us to disobedience. So before we start throwing stones at the world and telling how bad things have gotten, how bad they are, and people have been saying that for generations, always, and they always back up a decade or two to talk about how good it was then and ignore what was wrong with their generation. 
But before we start doing this, I want you to see God's part in this. Is God to blame for sin? Is God to... No, none of that. But I want you to see that God is even sovereign over all of this. Two areas that Paul highlights, and we'll bring this first point to a close. Two areas that he highlights of what happens when God gives us over to behavioral disintegration as a result of our rejecting Him. Sexual immorality and 21 other things. First of all, sexual immorality, verses 24 through 27. And notice, whether you like what Paul's talking about here or not, he picks it. He picks it. I want you to understand that if you struggle with homosexuality, if you struggle with same-sex attraction, we want to pastor and shepherd you. Okay? I want to be very clear about that. We talk about the grace of God a hundred billion times in this church. But I also want you to understand that what Paul is saying is that there is a part of God's judgment on sin that when He gives us over to what we want, those lusts and things flare up, and we not only do things that are immoral... And I want you to see the difference here. I didn't understand this till I read John Murray. But he talks about immoral sexual sins would be something like adultery. Not making it any better in some ways. Adultery is sexual sin between a man and a woman. Fornication. Sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman. And in that sense, it's immoral, but it's natural. And Paul says things can get so bad that, Paul, that God would give you over to that which is immoral and unnatural. And no matter what, look, be very clear about this too. I don't like using the word liberal and conservative. I just think so much political connotations. But there are scholars who are in liberal circles, for lack of better words, who don't believe the Bible's authority. They do not see the Bible how we would see it in this denomination. But good ones will tell you this. Paul is not talking about something other than homosexuality. You can say he is a hundred times all you want. He's talking about homosexuality. Okay? Paul picks it. And I think this is important for two reasons. Probably because that was something... That Rome was a very Gentile place, right? It was not Jerusalem. There were other sins that were acceptable in Jerusalem. This was far more prevalent and acceptable in Rome. So I think Paul is saying, I want to be real clear about this. Okay? And I think the second thing is because when you live in a society, as verse 32 says where even though these people will know God's righteous decree, they will give approval to them. And when you live in that sort of society, and that is the society that we are in, you will stop being startled by that which is unnatural. I want you to think about that. I think that's what Paul's doing here. But also, verse 29 and following. He doesn't just talk about one form of sexual immorality. He talks about 21 other sins. And 
There are all sorts of lists where you can find in the Bible like this. And, but, but commentators cannot figure out the rhyme or reason of this list. He just plops out 21 other sins. And they're all a result of God giving us over because of rejecting Him. So I want to be, sum this up very quickly. God's wrath, in a sense we could say it like this, is an intensification and aggravated cult cultivation giving us over to these sorts of behaviors. Not just sexual, but 21 plus disintegration. And we have to do this. We have to back up a step, and I have to be very clear about this. I want to be very clear with you. If you are not a Christian, you have to understand that God's wrath is real. That this is a forewarning of living apart from God and this life will lead to an eternity of living apart from all that which is holy, good, beautiful, true and loving in the best, truest biblical sense. And this is a warning to you that God's wrath is real. Yes, we're going to get to how it falls on Christ in chapter 3 for us. My mother, this is the illustration that came to me in the shower this morning, one of four. But as I was thinking again about wrath, I thought, you know, I grew up in a church that talked a lot about wrath. They didn't talk a lot about grace, but they talked a lot about wrath. And God used that in my life in a, in a beautiful way. Um, but I really learned wrath from my mother. I learned some other things from my dad when it came to these things, bless his heart. But I learned from my mother when we would go to the grocery store. I know this is another grocery store illustration, but we would go to the grocery store, and of course I would go because she would always get me what I wanted, sweets and treats and things. And I'm telling you, in, in the 70s, you could kind of discipline your children in any way you wanted in the grocery store, and nobody really said anything, except my mother. We would be walking down the aisle, I'm telling you, this happened all the time. And, and bless, you know, the person, whoever it was, is probably doing their best to control their children. How, how you even take children to the grocery store sometimes can be tricky. But say the dad or the mom is flying off the handle maybe even smacks their child. And I knew what was about to happen. It may have been a big person. And my mother would immediately, you could see it coming on her face, she would go to that person and she would put her hand on that person and she would say, stop, you cannot do that to that child. It was this emotion of righteous indignation that was in control and measured and fair. But it was wrath. And then she would do this. After a little, and I'm telling you, nobody ever responded ugly to her. They just melted because it was my mother. Because they knew she was saying it and doing it out of love. And she would always say this, she would say, how can I help you? Can I take your child while you shop? And I would just be like, 
Mom, what are you doing? She's being like God. See, look, Isaiah says that wrath is God's strange work. It's his alien work. It's not something he probably gets excited about. Love and kindness lead us to repentance when we see even out of God's love, His wrath is an expression of that, His righteous anger, that it's still His strange work. He cares so much about us, He's explaining this to us. Writers talk about how in, in Romans you proclaim the gospel and you explain the gospel. Paul is explaining to us not just what's going on in the world, but why. Do we want to live in a world with the wrath of God like this? Or do we want to turn to God? Because God is a God who is kind and is loving and is putting His hand out and saying, I'm going to help you. And that's how I want to close this morning, the love of God. In chapter 11, verse 32, I quoted this earlier. But right after a long discussion that I cannot wait for us to get into if you know Romans 11, but people of God, Gentile and Jew, but one of the things that he does, he says to the Jews, or he says to the Gentiles, look, yes, there's a point where God said to the Jews, if you keep rejecting me, no more. And it used that to reach Gentiles. But now he's saying to the Jews, hey, I want you to look at how I'm reaching the Gentiles and how I'm pouring out my love and grace to them. And I want you to sort of be jealous about that and be like, I want to come back to that God. And then he says this in verse 32. God has consigned all to disobedience. What we're seeing described here, not all without exception. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying God has consigned all to disobedience. Why? So that he may have mercy on them all. You see that? If you think about this, what he's saying is this. God is actually permitting this. He is, he is, he is executing his wrath in this way, not so that he can just be like, yeah, I'm getting them. Not at all. Because he wants to get you. He wants to bring you to himself. He wants you to bring, he wants you to come with all your disobedience, all your idolatry, and all your sin and say, this is killing me. And it's killing others. Help me, God. Put your hand on my arm. See, I think this is what he's saying. That this very disintegration is often the very thing that God uses to turn us to Him. Who in this room can testify to that? That as a teenager or a college student, you, you rejected God, and all of a sudden your life was just filled with all sorts of disintegration and behavioral sins, and it just got so bad, like the psalmist says, that the sorrow of those who run after God's will just multiply. It started coming out of your nostrils and you said, oh my goodness, Lord, I don't want to live like this anymore. And you cried out to God, have mercy on me. He said, I'd love to. 
I'd love to. And this is true for Christians too. When you're caught up in idolatry of peewee football, for goodness sake, can't I come up with something better than that? More sophisticated? Nope. When you cry out to God for help, He says, I'd love to. Again, back up a step. Why is this explained? Because it's all in the context of what Paul's trying to do. Paul is eager to preach the gospel to people like this. Do you believe that? He's eager to preach the gospel to homosexuals and transgenders and people that don't look like him and act like him and they haven't learned all the rules of the church yet. He's eager. Why? Listen to how Paul explains his own situation. I thank God who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to a service, though, you ready for this? Formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. Paul's saying, I was the worst of the worst. I was a chief of sinners. But I received mercy because I had acted in ignorance and unbelief. Do you see it again? He had experienced Romans 1. And he says, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. Overflowed. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. See, Paul wants murderers, envious, people filled with strife, gossip, slanderers, inventors of evil, those who affirm of these things. He looks at those people not as a political issue. He looks at those people not in a judgy way as Murray's going to get to next week as we often do. He looks at those people and he says, I have a burden for you because such as... I'm messing that up. Such was I. He has a burden. I watched a video recently. Uh, some of you know about uh, our denomination's campus ministry, RUF. Ellis and Bailey Walker heading that up here. And I was reached through RUF. I was basically Romans 1 on the run from God. And I was reached by it. And, you know, when I came into it, I learned a lot of things about the Bible, the gospel, and I learned about the history of our denomination, the history of RUF, but I kept hearing about this man named Mark Lowry. Mark was one of the founders of RUF. And I'd never met him. I'd always heard he was a little nerdy and kind of corny and didn't make a lot of sense what he would teach, and people didn't know what to do with him. But I always heard that Mark was the heart behind RUF, and I never understood that until I saw this video. 
where they're celebrating 50 years and they get all the heavy hitters in RUF and all the big wigs and they say nice things and they say everything you would think they would say and then they interview Mark and he's just kind of this older southern guy that every time he starts to talk, he starts weeping and praising God for how many people God had reached through this ministry. And I realized that Mark Lowry was the heart behind why so many people were reached. He was burdened. See, there's a way you can read Romans 1 and you can feel good about yourself until Murray preaches next week. You're not going to feel that great. You're going to be convicted. But that's not what we're here to do to beat you up with the law. We're here to show you that God's burden is sinners like Paul and me and all these people in Romans 1. And, and as others have said, when you have a burden, you have something that you now see that you cannot unsee. You've seen it. You've seen God's heart for sinners. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? Are you eager to see people like you and I reached with this gospel? Paul is. In fact, he leapt over walls to see it happen. Let me pray. God, thank you for your heart for us. It was such a burden that Jesus came into this world to take our very burdens of sin and guilt off of us and and save people like us, Lord. Not just immoral people, but people that said to You, no, thank You, stay away. And You did not. Praise God. Lord, would You create a doxology in all of our hearts, even as Paul expressed it, because he knew the grace of God was at work. In Jesus' name, amen.